Well, good morning again and Happy New Year. I don't know what a new year means for you. Uh, for many people, it means new resolutions, things that they want to start doing. A lot of times it's a recommitment to diet and exercise. That, that starts for me tomorrow. Unfortunately, I'm going to live it up today. I already know what my meals are going to be today because this is my final day. And then tomorrow, every Sunday you see me from here on out, I'm going to be healthier and sadder all at, this, all at the same time. Um, you know, for me, something else that every new year I do is I set aside about a month to read uh, historical nonfiction books, uh, some of the best-selling books the last couple years. And this year I just finished, or just a week I should say, I just finished a book called The Accidental President. And it's about Harry Truman. And if you're familiar with history at all, uh, Harry Truman became president in April of 1945 when FDR passed away while he was serving the beginning of his fourth term as our president. And the four months, this, this book looks at the four months from when FDR passed away uh, following that and makes the argument that these four months were the most significant four months in the history of our nation. And I just wanted to say, here's some of the things that happened in these four months that this book covers. First, the death of FDR, uh, the founding of the United Nations, the fall of Berlin and the surrender of the Nazis, the liberation of concentration camps, the Potsdam Conference between Truman, Churchill, and Stalin. Churchill then loses his re-election bid. Um, America is still in a fight against Japan at this point, and then they drop atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The surrender of Imperial Japan, the end of World War II, the start of the Cold War, and the start of the nuclear arm race. All happened in these four months. And by the end of these four months, people all over the world, including many religious leaders, were looking at this and saying, it's the end of the world. Things are about to end. Once we realized the power in an atomic bomb, and we understood the heart of human beings, everybody assumed we're done for. We're not going to last very long, and the world's going to be over. And there's really always been sort of a fascination with the end of the world. Uh, I grew up hearing about the end of the world, and, and things were happening that were indicating that the end of the world was near. And if you go to the movie theaters, so many movies are about the end of the world. So many movies are about uh, apocalyptic uh, events or post-apocalyptic living. And in the Bible, the last book of the Bible is called Revelation, and a man named John gets a vision of the end of the world. And it's a tremendous book, and it's a tremendously difficult book. And I don't know how many of you have tried to read it and understand it, but it is probably the most challenging book in all of Scripture to read and to understand. One of my good pastor friends said, the more I read it, the less I understand it. <laughs> I think that's probably a good, humble approach to take to the book of Revelation. The more I read it, the less I understand it. It was written by a man named John. John was one of Jesus' closest disciples. And John's probably 80 or 90 years old at this point. Uh, this is about 60 years after Jesus has ascended to be back in heaven. And John has been banished to an island. The island's name is Patmos. And this island is about 6 miles by 10 miles. And it's 40 miles um, f across the Aegean Sea from a city called Ephesus. John is there because he's been preaching the gospel and they don't want him to. So they send him over there. And, and John gets this tremendous revelation. And what we're going to do... Uh, for the next eight weeks, is we're going to study the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. 
What I want to do this morning, though, is I just want to give us some overview. And I want to start by looking at the first three verses of the book. It says this, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Interesting because it says they must soon take place. And here we are 2,000 years later still waiting for some of these things to take place. But the apostle Peter himself said a thousand, uh, to the Lord, a, a thousand years is like a day. So we don't really know when it says soon what that exactly means for us. He made it known by sending his servant, his angel, to, the ser- to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Now, blessed is the one. This is one of the few books that has a blessing over the reading of it. So even this morning as I'm reading it out loud, there's a blessing available. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear, that's you this morning, and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. So what we're going to do this morning is a little different than most Sundays. So if you're visiting or if you're joining online for the first time, this is not a probably a normal Sunday morning message, a little different. Uh, what I want to do is kind of do a half and half thing. And uh, one of the things that I do in addition to serving at this church is I actually, I serve as an adjunct professor at a university outside of Philadelphia, and I teach a class online. And so uh, one of the weirdest experiences is getting emails from my students calling me Professor Hurtwick because I do not feel like I'm a professor at all, but that's all they know to call me. But what I'm going to kind of do this morning is put my professor hat on, so to speak, for the first half of this message, and then I'll put a pastor hat on for the second half. And what I really want to do is we're not going to study the whole book of Revelation. I know like Revelation is the one book that most Christians are like, I want to hear about it. I want to hear teaching on it. I want to know what you think about it. But we're not going to cover the whole thing. So what I thought I would do this morning is I want to give you seven suggestions on how to read this book. Seven guidelines, seven thoughts on how to approach Revelation so that when you're reading it and studying it on your own, it might be helpful for you, make some sense. And then at the end, I'm just going to share three things that we learn about Jesus from Revelation chapter 1. So, Professor Hat, all right, let's go. I'm going to try and go fast because I know not everybody will will enjoy the feeling of being in a class. By the way, there's a lot of content coming, and these notes are in the digital bulletin that's online. But if you want the notes to my message this morning, if this is something that's very interesting to you, and you're like, I'd like to see your notes, let me know and I'll email it to you. I'll email you my sermon notes every week if that's something that's valuable to you to have. So first, Revelation. Here we go. This book is primarily the revelation of Jesus and not the revelation of the end times. Now, there's a lot in the book of Revelation about the end times, but it said right at the beginning, we read it, Revelation 1.1, it said this is the revelation of Jesus. It didn't say this is the revelation of who the Antichrist is. This is the revelation of what the mark of the beast means. This is the revelation of what the tribulation will... That's not how it starts. It starts, this is the revelation of Jesus. And so when we go to the book of Revelation, we have to go to it just like we go to any other book of the Bible. Not to try to crack a code, not to try to figure out the timeline of the end times, but primarily to say, what is in this book for me to help me see Jesus, who he is and what he's done? Because this is primarily the revelation of Jesus, not a revelation of the end times. Number two, This book needs to be read and interpreted as a distinct mix of genres. You know, when you're reading literature, there's different type of genres, right? And you have to interpret poetry different than you would interpret a novel, right? You read those things differently. And the book of Revelation is a mix of different genres. The first three chapters, which is what we're really going to be studying the next two months, 
it's the, it's the genre of an epistle, which means it's a letter that was written to a specific people at a specific time to address specific issues. But then, once you get past Revelation chapter 3, things get crazy. <laughs> things get weird. And if you've read Revelations, you know what happens. In Revelation chapter 4, all of a sudden, there's visions, and there's images, and there's beasts, and there's different colored horses, and there's seals, and there's trumpets, and there's all this sort of weird stuff, and there's dragons, and it's just like, feels like, like you're, it's like uh, Narnia meets Lord of the Rings or something, right? And, and so, what do you do with all that? Well, most of the book of Revelation, from chapter 4 on, is a type of genre that is called apocalyptic, which means there's lots of images used. But the images are not always meant to be literally interpreted. The images are meant to evoke an emotion in the reader. So if there's a beast, it's meant to evoke dread and fear. If there's a lamb that's slain on the throne, it's meant to evoke worship and appreciation. So these images are not so much meant for us to diagnose them and break them down and try to determine what means this. It's more to, to, to bring out of us some sort of an emotional response. And, and this was written at a time when Rome, which was the uh, nation in power, they knew how to use images to do this. And images were a very big part of Roman culture. And so this was written as counter images to the images of the imperial power of Rome. All right, number three. This book, Revelation, had original recipients, and it meant something real to them. So when John wrote this, there's some disagreement, but most people believe that John wrote this towards the end of the first century A.D., so probably around 90 A.D. There was a man that was ruling over Rome at that time, and his name was Domitian. And Domitian was a wicked, wicked emperor. Domitian believed that he himself was God, and he demanded people worship him, and he demanded that people would say that Caesar is Lord. And because Christians would not bow their knees to Caesar, and because instead of saying Caesar is Lord, Christians were saying Jesus is Lord, Domitian is known from history to have ordered the execution of literally tens of thousands of followers of Jesus. And these are the people that John was writing this book to. He was writing it to them, and it meant something real to them. These people were going to their graves, they were going to their deaths, being killed for their belief, and these words that John wrote, was, were, they were giving them strength, giving them hope, helping them to endure. So when we read Revelation, let's not just think this means something for us here in 2021 and the future. It meant something back then. Every word of the book of Revelation meant something back then to the people who first received it. Number four, I got this from a commentary by a guy named Daryl Johnson. You know, a lot of times when people read Revelation, they try to figure out what is going to be the order of events of the end times. And the challenge with reading Revelation that way is that apocalyptic literature is not written that way. And so the question is not what happens next, but what did John see next? Because remember, Revelation is John, what is he doing? He's recording visions that God gave him. So John is not recording things in, in a sense of like, here's how the end of time is going to play out. He's recording things in the order in which he sees them. Forty times in the book of Revelation, John uses the phrase, I saw. 
He sees things. And so the key question is not what happens next, but what did John see next? If you try to read Revelation in a chronological order to understand the end times, you're going to get very frustrated because it's more circular than it is linear. It feels like the world ends multiple times and there's these seals and then these, these bowls and it feels like it's the same thing happening over and over. And then you get to Revelation chapter 12 and it brings us all the way back to the night that Jesus is born. You're like, wait a minute, <laughs> what's going on? Where are we headed? It's not what happens next. It's what did John see next. Number five, I love this one. I got this from my friend. He's a pastor in Missouri, Dr. Jim Bradford. The details are difficult, but the message is unmistakable. The details are difficult, but the message is unmistakable. You ever have a conversation with somebody and you can't quite, they're so emotional, they're so upset, they're so distraught that you can't quite get every little detail, but just based on how emotional they are, the message is unmistakable. Something is very bad. Something has gone very wrong. They're very upset for some reason. Listen, Revelation is a difficult book, and the details are very difficult, but the message of Revelation is unmistakable. And the primary message of the book of Revelation is that Jesus Christ is supreme, he is sufficient, and he's sovereign. He's supreme, which means he's above all. He's sufficient, which means he's enough for all. And he's sovereign, which means he's in control of all. There's a few themes and messages in Revelation that you need to walk away with. Instead of getting lost in the details and losing the forest for the trees, you have to realize that Revelation also was given to us to remind us of the reality of supernatural things are happening and the reality of heaven, that heaven is real, that there is a heaven, and that God does reign and rule. Revelation also was given to us, one of the primary messages is that people will suffer that God's people will suffer, that there will be struggle and tribulation on this earth, but that's not all that there is, that there's always a faithful remnant, that there's always those who are faithful to God, that there's a battle between evil and good, but the ultimate victory of, is God's and is ours too. And then finally, it's this beautiful message that someday all things will be made new. There'll be a new heavens and a new earth <laughs> and no more sickness, no more shame, no more regrets, you without your insecurities, you without your struggles, you without your past, you without your sin, it's happening, it's coming. And that is the message of Revelation, that Jesus has done what is necessary to bring this story to its completion. And at the completion, we'll reign and we'll rule with him. So when you get into Revelation, instead of getting caught up on trying to figure out X, Y, and Z, and what date is this, and what is that, and what nation does this represent, I mean, if that's your thing, that's fine. But please, don't, real, don't forget that it's the message overall that matters the most. Number six, when it comes to Revelation, there's room for different interpretations, but not divisive attitudes. The church should not divide on the interpretation of the book of Revelation there's so many different views. And if this is something that you kind of geek out on and you're like, I love this stuff, I'll send you links till, you're, till your fingers are bleeding. Like, I'll send you stuff to read and to enjoy if you want. But I'm just telling you, there are so many different interpretations of the book of Revelation amongst people who all love Jesus. And that's one thing we have to remember is that just because somebody doesn't agree with you on like the millennial reign of Christ, whether it's a literal thousand years or whether it's a metaphor, whether it's a um, metaphorical one thousand years, not literal, uh, or if they don't agree with you on the rapture, or if they don't agree with you on the mark of the beast, they don't agree with you on the role of the church or the role of Israel, they don't agree with you on that stuff. We still have to be able to be gracious enough to say that's my brother in Christ. 
And that's my sister in Christ. And I will not be divisive towards them. And I will not question their devotion to Jesus simply because they interpret the most difficult book to interpret differently than I do. There's dozens and dozens of camps within evangelicalism, within the Christian faith, that that interpret the book of Revelation differently. And even amongst people who interpret the same, there's so many little variations in those groups too. So what do we do? We recognize that there is room for different interpretations, but not divisive attitudes. And then lastly, and this is so important, reading this book should give us confidence and hope and not insecurity and uncertainty and fear. I've talked to so many people who grew up in the church, and for them, Revelation was just, it made them so afraid. The whole thing just filled them with so much fear, whether it was the fear of being left behind, or it was the fear of getting the mark of the beast and not realizing they got the mark of the beast, or the fear of this, that, and the other. And Revelation was not written to fill our hearts with fear. Revelation was written to fill our hearts with hope and to fill our hearts with the confidence that God is sovereign, that he's in control, that he's working all things, and that he wins, and that we get to be a part of that. All right, so there's my professor hat. Professor hat off. Sorry if that wasn't good for you. Uh, but let's, 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 let's end this morning with a devotional that I want to do from John chapter 1 on the revelation of Jesus. And there's three things that we learn in Revelation 1 about Jesus. And the first thing is this. We learn what Jesus did. And it's right here in verse 4. It says, John said to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings of earth. Look at here what it says about what Jesus did. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and forever. Amen. Three things that Jesus did for us according to this text. Number one, he loved us. Jesus looked at us in our sin. He looked at us in our shame. He looked at you in your rebellion against him. He looked at you in your disinterest in him, and he loved you. And we sang it this morning that from heaven he came running, and there was mercy in his eyes. Have you seen the mercy in his eyes towards you? This is what he's done. He loved you. Secondly, it said right in the text, he freed us from our sins through the shedding of his blood. Thank Jesus for his work on the cross. He set us free from the penalty of our sins. He set us, he's setting us free from the, the, he set us free from the punishment of our sins. He's setting us free from the power of sin. And someday he will set us free from the very presence of sin. The penalty, the power, the presence of sin. We could not free ourselves, but Jesus Christ came to set us free through the shedding of his blood on the cross. This is what he's done for us. But not only did he free us, it then goes on to say in the passage that we read, he's making us into a kingdom. That's good news. He didn't just set you free to now go find a new master. He didn't just set you free to wander until he comes and gets you. He sets you free so that you could belong fully and solely to him. It's not that we no longer are bound to anyone, but now instead of being bound to ourselves and our selfishness and our sin, we're bound to Christ. And we belong to him. And he's making us into a kingdom. His priests, those who do his work and advance his work both here and now and there and then. And this is what Jesus did for us. He loved us, he freed us, and he made us. Second thing that we see is what Jesus will do. Verse 7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. 
Even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, Alpha and Omega means he's the beginning and the end. It's all from him. It's all for him. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. He is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. What will Jesus do? He will return for his people. We can know that with confidence. A lot of disagreement out there about when he will return, what will happen before he returns, what will happen after. Fine, set it aside. Here's where we all agree. He will return. Jesus himself said, the same way in which you see me go, I'm going to return. The angels came and they said that the disciples, you saw him go, he's going to return. Jesus said, if I was not going to return to you, it wouldn't be good news, but I'm going to return to you. I'm coming back for you. This is the promise that we have, that he will return for his people. Now, the danger of that promise is that sometimes it makes people look at the book of Revelation like a book on how to escape this place. But Revelation was not written to teach us how to escape, but to teach us how to endure How do we endure this present reality that we're living in? Jesus is not calling us to sit around and wait till he gets us out of here and then escape out of here to something bigger and better. Thank God he is going to come back for us. But he has a work for us to do right here and right now. Revelation is not just here's how you leave this place. It's here's how you live in this place. And so he will come back for his people. And then lastly this morning, Pastor Antonia is going to come and we're going to sing a song before we take communion together what Jesus is doing. And i got to say, all week as I've been preparing this message, this has been so, uh, just creating so much energy in my heart. Look at what it says in verse 10. John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Remember, he's banished to this island, island of Patmos. It's so interesting because the powers of the government, the government of Rome, banished John to Patmos thinking that they'll shut him up. And what happens? God gives him this vision, which we're still reading and studying 2,000 years Later, God will not be stopped. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. And these are the seven churches that we're going to study the next seven weeks, the letters that he writes. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. And then he has this vision of Jesus where he sees Jesus standing there. His hair is as white as snow, which means he's the Ancient of Days that's described in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. His eyes are filled with flaming fire, meaning that he has an all-searching gaze, that he sees all, that nothing escapes his gaze. He sees sin, he sees injustice, and he also sees faithfulness. He says that his feet are burnished bronze, which speaks of the absolute purity and strength of Jesus. His voice sounded like many waters. What would that sound like? It speaks of authority and that the voice of Jesus can drown out all other voices. How many of you have learned in your own life that Jesus' voice can drown out the other voices in your head, the other voices in your heart, maybe voices from your past, things that have been spoken over you, maybe voices from your present, people right now who are speaking death over you instead of life, maybe voices that you actually, things you actually say to yourself that you're not good enough, that no one would love you, that no one would accept you, that if only you had done this and if only you had done that, and then the voice of Jesus comes like many waters and has the power to drown out all of those voices. This is who Jesus is. Out of his mouth was a double-edged sword which symbolized Jesus speaking decisive words 
of judgment and his very face shine like the sun, the glory of the risen Jesus. And as beautiful as all that is, you know what I love most about this vision? I love where Jesus is standing. It said that he was standing in the middle of the seven lampstands. Now, what does that mean? We know that those lampstands represent the seven churches that John was about to write to. In fact, you got to go all the way back to the Old Testament to a prophet named Zechariah who had a vision of a lampstand and it represented the temple and the restoration of the temple. And now, many years later, these seven lampstands represent the churches. And here's what one of the commentaries says. Stick with me on this and we're going to close. Zechariah's lampstand symbolized the presence of God in the temple. Now, in Revelation, it's fulfilled by the seven lampstands symbolizing God's presence in each of the seven churches to whom John writes. Zechariah, he had two sons of oil, Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel, a royal descendant of David. But both of those people now are fulfilled in Jesus, who stands among the lampstands as God's presence in his church. Jesus himself fills the office of high priest and high king of Israel. The vision of the lampstand and the two olive trees in Zechariah guaranteed that God would empower the rebuilding of the temple many, many years ago. And in the same way, John's vision of Jesus among the lampstands guarantees that God will accomplish his purpose in the building of the church. Jesus Christ is standing in the middle of his church. It's his church. It's his work. And he's faithful. And here's what I know, no matter what comes our way in 2021, no matter what challenges we face, I think we all hope 2021 will be different than 2020, but we don't know. We don't know anything today about 2021. And whatever's coming, here's one certainty that we can have, that Jesus Christ himself is standing in the midst of his people. And he's faithful. And so our prayer in 2021 is not Jesus come stand in our midst because he already is, but Jesus make us aware. Make us increasingly aware that you're right here. Where we gather, there you are. You're standing in our midst, and you have a work for us to do. And it's such an important work. In the next seven weeks, we're going to hear Jesus' heart to the church. And in hearing his heart to these seven churches, I believe we're going to hear his heart to Trinity. It's an important series. And we need to be here. We need to be ready to respond in person, online, however we can be together. But Jesus Christ, the faithful one, is in our midst and he will sustain his work to the end. Let's pray together.